Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Matthew Vincent. This week, we'll be discussing investment bankers' bonuses, Goldman Sachs' mass market strategy, and big trouble at one of the UK's fastest-growing lenders. Joining me in the studio to do so are Stephen Morris and Nick McGaw, with Laura Noonan talking to us from New York, and our guest this week, Dr Monica Franco, reader in governance at the Cranfield School of Management. So let's start with bonuses. If you're a Barclays investment banker, we have good news and bad news. It looks like you had a pretty good second half of 2019. The third quarter was strong, with investment banking net profit up 41%. And trading revenues were up for most of the big players in the final quarter as well. But the bad news is that Barclays cut the amount of money set aside for bonuses so much in the first half its bonus pool will still end the year down by mid-teens percentage points or so we're told. It appears to be all about hitting profit targets to counter the criticisms of activist shareholder Edward Bramson. Now Stephen you reported on this bonus cut and it does seem that bonuses have become a bit of an issue at Barclays in recent years. Yes, well, I don't get the sense that Barclays will be too upset to see this story out there as they have had lots of issues, especially back in 2012, where they had the infamous headline of revenues down, bonuses up. And this really is all about Jess Staley and his battle with activist investor Edward Bramson. He has to, as one of our sources told us, hit his 9% return on tangible equity target come hell or high water. And it's easier to cut costs than generate revenue when you're in this late stage of the battle. So he is really doing everything he can to show that he's taking it seriously and not give Edward Bramson a window to attack the investment bank as he has been. Readers will remember that he has been after the investment bank for more than a year now, arguing the trading arm needs to be closed down. And it's a major drag on profitability when compared with the more earnings-friendly retail and credit card units that Barclays operates. So as you said, good news and bad news. Bonuses are down, but ultimately in today's environment of European investment banking, a lot of people at Barclays are going to be very happy to have a job and being paid any kind of bonus at all. I think one of the calculations CEO Jess Daly has made is that he can cut bonuses because there really aren't that many other jobs out there and certainly not many other banks that are raising their bonus pool. For example, if you work for Deutsche across Europe, you are likely to see your bonus cut by 30% or more. That's the aggregate fall that's been reported for the whole group. So good news and bad news. You have a job, but you might be paid slightly less than you thought you might. So a mid-teens percentage cut to your bonus isn't such a bad thing. Is that reflected in the mood at the bank? Well, a common refrain from bankers is flat is the new up. So I guess mid-teens down is the new flat. I guess Jess Staley has really reinvigorated the investment banking, especially trading side of the business, 
it almost looked inevitable for a number of years that this would be cut back to the bone and just kind of operate in a specialist environment. So the fact that they do have a determined proponent of their usefulness in the context of the overall Barclays group will make sure that morale is still pretty high. But you know, ultimately, it is a testing time to be an investment banker in Europe. You're constantly seeing your market share eroded by the encroachment of the major five US Wall Street players. And you will have to get used to machines taking your job as increasingly trading is done through AI and other smart technological advances. So yeah, I guess make hay while the sun shines if you're at Barclays. So not too much to complain about then. If I can bring in Dr. Monica Franco from Cranfield School of Management, you've worked in the private sector and specialised in the design of bonuses and incentives. Is there strong evidence that you've found that bonuses do boost performance? Yes, actually. Bonuses can boost performance under a number of conditions. Obviously, initially, we need to start from believing that the person that is working for the bonus is motivated by money, which I think in investment banking is an assumption that we can take. The size of the bonus has to be motivating, which again, in this case, that is what happens. So they can double their base pay salary in terms of bonuses. Then another condition is that performance can be measured in the period that the bonus is going to take place. So in this case, the bonuses are normally measured in terms of financial performance metrics, profit or revenue, and they are measured in a short-term basis, so either per quarter or annually. So in those situations, again, bonuses can lead to performance. And then if the targets are achievable, and I think in the case of Barclays, This is something that could be questioned as I've been reading that many perceived targets are not necessarily that achievable. And then a fifth condition, which is really, really critical for these type of jobs, is to what extent the individuals that are working for the bonuses have control of the factors that influence performance. And in this case, many things are going around in the marketplace and in the economy that obviously are affecting, in this case, the profits of Barclays. So perhaps because of that, it could affect, obviously, the performance of the individuals working for the bonus and the bonus itself. So if, say, some of Barclays investment bankers don't feel that targets are necessarily achievable, they may not have control over all of the factors. What might a bonus cut do for morale or performance? So normally when we cut bonuses, the natural reaction of individuals working for them is to decrease their motivation, especially when they have no control over what affected the bonus. And you could argue that if you decrease your motivation, then that could lead to a lower performance and eventually a higher turnover of employees. However, as your colleague said, obviously there are external factors that could explain the situation. So for example, what's going on in the economy in this part of Europe, also the labor market, the fact that Barclays is the only investment bank at the moment in Europe, and many jobs are going in that area. So there are multiple factors that are affecting So although initially people may be demotivated, all these other things could compensate the situation. And if the cut in the bonuses comes with an explanation about why is this being done, then perhaps Barclays can go ahead with it without having a huge impact on turnover. Sure. And just finally, are there any unintended consequences of investment bank bonus structures? 
<laughs> well, that's a very good question. I mean, I think every time we put a lot of pressure on pay, and especially when there are multiple factors that can influence it, in this case, the bonus part, the variable part, people could do things that may not be considered as expected, mainly because there is a lot of money at risk. So uh, this is the main problem that investment banking has. How do you ensure that the people that are working for the bonus do it in an ethical way without cutting corners to make sure that they meet their targets? We have seen what can happen when we put a lot of pressure on those targets and we attach a lot of money to achieving them. Indeed. And it sounds like Barclays are going to have to keep hitting their targets, though, if they have to keep their activist shareholder <laughs> on side. Dr. Monica yeah. Franco, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you. Now, for the best part of around 130 years, Goldman Sachs kept itself shrouded in the secrecy of a partnership structure. Some say it tried to retain that mystique for its first two decades as a listed company. But this week, Chief Executive David Solomon will do something that no Goldman boss has ever done before. He will stand up in front of shareholders, analysts and journalists at the bank's first ever Investor Day. It marks a key point in an overhaul of the bank's operations as it moves from its trading and investment banking roots to an institution offering everything from current accounts to money management and credit cards for the masses. And Laura Noonan in New York has been studying this with some interest. So, Laura, what has caused Goldman to go about this shift in strategy? So there's been two key drivers. The first is that Goldman's traditional businesses, trading in particular, haven't been as lucrative in the last decade as they would have previously been. That's got a lot to do with changes in regulation that came in after the financial crisis. And because its traditional businesses haven't been doing so well, Goldman has really lagged the other big US banks. And we have a nice graphic in the piece showing how Goldman's share price growth has gone pretty much nowhere, whereas the other big US banks have enjoyed quite a lot of share price growth and market cap growth in the last decade. The other big driver for Goldman was that during the financial crisis, they were forced to take a banking license as part of the various rescue measures. A banking license covers costs, but there's also an attitude of, well, if you have it and you have to pay for it, you might as well make the most of it. And the way to make the most of it is by doing some of these consumer lending and other consumer traditional banking businesses. And so what are the main changes that it's making? The consumer bank that's set up, Marcus, seems to be quite central to the strategy. How is that progressing? So markets is central symbolically, but not central financially. So I think the whole consumer arm, which includes markets, but also the Apple card, which is the credit card partnership with Apple, they together accounted for less than 3% of Goldman Sachs' revenue last year. So it's central in terms of what they're trying to do, but it's not yet financially material. So the consumer arm has a couple of different things to it. The main planks at the moment are the Apple card and the Marcus application, but there are other things within consumer that they could do. They're also doing other things around changing their business model, like building a cash management business. The cash management business, which effectively manages money for companies in the same way as the current account manages money for people, that's something which will probably grow quicker. It's just not as sexy in terms of headlines as markets and the Apple card. The other thing that they're doing to change their business model is that they're turning their old merchant bank, which used to primarily invest partners' capital and invest Goldman's own capital, they're trying to turn that to a more client-led enterprise. That means raising more funds from outside investors, and that means that Goldman gets its money through fees 
rather than through gains and losses, which is a volatile way to make your money. So there are other big things going on at business model level besides just the consumer bank. Yes, clearly a whole raft of measures and some will have some way to go. I suppose one of the criticisms that has been levelled at the strategy is that Goldman's is pretty much just turning itself into a copy of all the other banks, whereas it used to be regarded as something different, better, a bit more special. Is it really changing the culture and image of the bank, do you think? I think in some places, yes. I mean, there's a lot of parts to that question. As to whether Goldman could change into something like the other big universal banks in the US, there's two questions that would they want to, and I don't think they probably would, and also could they, and they probably couldn't. Something like building a chase size retail bank is a mammoth operation and it would take decades unless you bought something which Goldman probably couldn't afford to do. In terms of whether it's losing some of the prestige, I mean, there was an interesting interview with David Solomon, the Goldman chief executive on Bloomberg last week, and he was talking about how they thought hard about the brand and retain the brand and how what they were doing was additive to the brand. I don't think that's a very clear cut thing because it's not like they're only serving the upper tier. So previously, Goldman has been very much targeted at the high end of pretty much everything. The savings and the Apple card, it's very much a mass market proposition. It's not an elite proposition. So I think there is a bit of confusion in what they've tried to do to protect the Goldman brand is like branding the consumer under Marcus, which was one of the Goldman Sachs founders, Marcus Goldman, and they've tried to put a bit of distance while at the same time having the Goldman credibility. That's a very tricky balancing act. And what they're hoping that they can do is retain the real eliteness in the areas where that matters. And that's things like when you're trying to recruit people and when you're trying to sell your investment banking services, but also be a hip and modern brand for the millennials who are getting Apple Card. And that's a very tough thing to straddle and I think we'll probably see over the next decade or so if Goldman can actually do that and I say the next decade quite deliberately the idea this is going to be a very quick thing or something that we're going to see in the next coming years I think isn't really where it's at I think this is something that will take about a decade before we can see really how this all pans out. And as you say it does sound like a difficult balancing act. Laura thanks very much indeed for joining us to talk it through. And finally today, a tale of one of the UK's fastest-growing lenders. Founded back in 2005, Amigo pioneered guarantor loans, offering credits to customers with poor credit histories as long as they had a friend or a family member who could step in if there was a default. The UK market for these loans more than doubled in size between 2016 and 2019, according to the Financial Conduct Authority, with Amigo's £730 million loan book accounting for over 80% of the total. But news that Amigo's founder and majority shareholder now wants to sell up has sent the company's stock market valuation plunging by 29%, making it London's worst-performing big initial public offering in more than three years. Nick, you've been following the fortunes of Amigo for some time. What's gone wrong for it? As you said, in the run-up to its IPO in 2018, it was growing extremely quickly. It had a return on equity that banks wouldn't even dream of. It was over 45%. But to some degree, it's been a bit of a victim of its own success. So as other types of high-cost credit have declined and guarantor loans have become increasingly prominent, that has brought increasing scrutiny from regulators. 
And that's been the main driver of a lot of the pressure on its shares over the last couple of months that came to a head earlier this week with the main shareholder deciding he wants to sell up. So it was 29% in one day to bring the total decline since the IPO to over 80. Getting lots of pressure from regulators is not ideal at the best of times, but their response to it has been complicated by this slightly dysfunctional relationship with their founder, James Benamore. So he sold some stock in the IPO, unsurprisingly, but still owned more than 60% of the company. He then quit the board a couple of months later, and there's reports of tensions with the rest of the executives and board members, and that he was planning on potentially even starting up his own international rival to Amigo, despite the fact he still owned the majority of Amigo. And then the middle of 2019, he said that he might cut his stake further. And then we heard nothing from him until November, when he reappears, claims two seats on the board, effectively leads to the departure of the CEO and chairman, although they're keen to say that he didn't remove anyone. And then two months after that, he tells the board that he's not back to re-exert control. He wants to sell his stake, which, given he owns 60%, means the company is for sale. And you have a chairman and a chief executive who are trying to sell the company that they had turnaround plans for while they're effectively serving out their notice. So what's made it become so unattractive? You talk about the fact that it was really built up as a business thanks to regulatory scrutiny on other types of high-cost lending, I suppose payday lenders, and so the customers who couldn't go there perhaps went to Amigo. Is it now that the guarantor loan sector is being targeted by regulators? In part, yes. I mean, the regulator has been paying attention to all sorts of high-cost credit, and it's effectively, in a way, it's finished dealing with the most expensive end of the market, and then it's moving down the chain slightly. So Amigo considers itself to be a mid-cost lender. It charges 49.9%, so one could debate how mid-cost that is, but compared to the 1,000-plus percent that are sometimes charged by payday lenders, it is cheaper than that. But the FCA, as it has finished the work on the others, has started paying more attention to guarantor loans, as I said, and... There's a couple of specific areas that it's raised concerns about, although it hasn't yet done any formal investigations. One is, at a kind of fundamental level, there's an argument over whether if you have a creditworthy guarantor who agrees to step in if you can't pay, then should you be getting charged such an expensive interest rate? The second question is whether the guarantors who are signing up to this really understood the risks. And thirdly, was the company relying too much on repeat customers? which taps into a broader concern about vulnerability and whether these people are trapped in persistent debt. And then at the same time as that, you have the financial ombudsman who deals with consumer complaints about financial firms. And there's a sense among many people in the industry, not just at Amigo, that they take and have been taking an increasingly aggressively pro-consumer approach to its complaints. That is, its attitude as to what lenders should have to pay compensation for does not necessarily tally with what the lenders would like to pay compensation for, and trying to adapt to that is costing them quite a lot of money. So these regulatory pressures obviously weighing very heavily on sentiment towards the company. I mean, I think its market value at one point was about £1.5 billion. It's nowhere near that now. What might the business be worth if it were to be sold? It's a good question. Its market cap as of this morning is just £225 or thereabouts, which is a massive drop. But as you said before, bearing in mind its loan book is over 700 million. I think Mr. Benamore and the other investors would be hoping that they'd get a slight premium over the current 225 if they were to find a buyer. But that is contingent on finding someone who is interested in it. And that's my next question. Who might come along and want to buy Amigo? 
Well, again, there is a huge amount riding on what you think about the regulatory threat. If you're bullish, if you believe that the regulator won't make many changes or that the proposals that had been made by the previous management of Amigo to essentially preempt any crackdown by reducing their reliance on repeat borrowers and so on, if you think that that's enough, then underneath it, Amigo is still, it might not be at 45% return on equity anymore, but still at like 25, that's still a very profitable business. And at 225 million is very cheap. In which case, there's people who've been linked to it. There's a couple of other high-cost lenders like Non-Standard Finance who have shown their interest in the past that they're willing to look at deals when they tried to buy Provident Financial last year. Provident themselves are someone who has been linked with it as well. And among private companies is New Day, who are more well-known for doing a lot of store credit cards or a private equity firm could be interested. I mean, again, it's cash-generative, cheap. But if you're worried that the regulator is going to clamp down more and this is going to go the way of payday lenders, then it's barely worth the $225 million. So it's quite a binary bet at the moment. Yes, who will want to take the risk? Well, we'll keep monitoring the situation and let you know what happens. But that's all we have time for this week. My thanks to Nick McGaw, to Stephen Morris, Laura Noonan from New York, and our guest, Dr Monica Franco from Cranfield School of Management. And thank you all for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at www.ft.com forward slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon and Persis Love. Until next week, goodbye.